Not long ago, Tara and I watched uh, several episodes of a show called The Lost Kitchen. I don't know if you have seen it or not. The show centers around a restaurant in Maine where the food is so good that there isn't enough space for everyone. And so several years ago, the owner of the restaurant changed her process for taking reservations. So now, to get a seat at this table, you have to send them a postcard a year in advance, and you have to explain on the postcard why you think they should select you, why you should have a place at the table. And even after sending the postcard, your chances of getting selected are really, really slim, which is why people will write poetry about why they should have a place at the table, or they will draw beautiful pictures, or they will write a letter that is moving and emotionally powerful of why this would be the most perfect night if they could just get a seat at this table. The Bible tells us that one day when Jesus returns, there will be what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. This marriage supper is between the groom, whom the Bible describes as Jesus Christ, and his bride, whom the Bible describes as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, all those who trust and believe in Jesus And there will be a great celebration where we will celebrate being together with King Jesus forever. Gathered around that table, we will celebrate with every Christian who has ever lived. We will celebrate our eternal reward, which is the presence of Jesus in the flesh forever. But what if when you came in this morning, you were handed a postcard by one of the greeters, and now we were to stop in the middle of the sermon, and I were to say, take the next five minutes, and I want you to write down why you think you should have a spot at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. What would you write? Why should you have a seat at the table? Maybe you would write about your morality That you've led a relatively clean life, especially compared to the people around you. Maybe the people seated around you right now. Maybe you would write about your church attendance, how you have served for years at this church. Maybe even serving in horror of horrors, the nursery. Maybe you would write about leading a small group or going on a missions trip, especially to a third world country. Maybe you would write that you deserve a place at the table because you are well liked or you're successful in your vocation or because your kids turned out happy and well adjusted. Maybe you'd write about your intellectual abilities or your educational accomplishments. Why do you deserve a place around the table when Christ returns? Or to put it another way, what kind of people have a place around the table when Christ returns? Thankfully this morning, Jesus answers that question for us here in Luke chapter 6. So grab your Bible if you haven't done so already and open with me. To Luke chapter 6, if you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 862. This morning we're going to 
look at a fairly well-known part of Scripture called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. A Beatitude is really a blessing. Blessed are these kinds of people. So the Beatitudes describe, if you will, the people for whom Christ came. They describe the kind of people that have access, the kind of people that have a seat around the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they're really structured in the terms of of an Old Testament oracle. So in the Old Testament, there were these things called oracles, and an oracle was both a blessing and a curse. It was, blessed are you if you X, Y, and Z, and cursed are you if you A, B, and C. And that's how these Beatitudes and woes are structured here. In other words, Jesus is kind of blowing back the fog of time and showing us what really matters on the road ahead. What does it look like to lead a good life? What does it look like to be rewarded with a seat at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb in the end? And this is... Jesus' answer to that, and contrary to what we might expect, Jesus' definition, who has a seat at the table, is not necessarily what we would think, or whom we would think would have a seat at the table. We look at wealth and satisfaction and happiness here and now as a gauge for the good life, but as we'll see, God's economy works differently than our own. And even those who have perceived status in our society, in our economy right now, are not necessarily those who have status in the end when we gather around the marriage supper of the Lamb. In a way, it's like a 10-year or a 20-year high school class reunion. You know, when you discover that those who were really popular or had everything going for them in high school, some of those people are actually now miserable and grumpy and empty people. And those that seem to maybe go unnoticed or were ignored in high school are those who now are leading joy-filled and happy lives. We pick up in this narrative, Luke chapter 6, Jesus has just finished choosing the 12 apostles, these 12 men who would carry forward his ministry. And notice what the word of the Lord says in verse 17. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of the people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, 
for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus comes partway down the mountain now with his newly anointed, so to speak, apostles, and he stops at this level place, a plain, and a crowd of people gather. They've come to hear him preach. They've come to hear him teach. They've come to be healed, as verse 19 shows us. The, the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Jesus clearly is unlike any other, and now Jesus is about to begin a sermon that will We'll start here in verse 20, and we'll go through the end of chapter 6 of Luke. Now, if you're paying attention, maybe as I was reading this section, you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, this sounds an awful lot like the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. There's a reason for that. Scholars have a bit of a, a debate going whether or not this is just simply a retelling of the Sermon on the Mount. It could be, so some scholars will say this is the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew recorded it, Luke recorded the same event. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, the Sermon on the Mount is on a mount. Jesus goes up on the mountainside and teaches, and here he comes down to a plain. What do we do with that? Well, some scholars will say this is actually a plain on the side of a mountain. Well, that could be. Others will say, no, this is actually... A different sermon more than likely, but since Jesus had several themes that he kind of preached as he went around, like any evangelist who has three or four or five sermons, they preach in different locations at different times. This is Jesus simply preaching, reiterating the same themes to a different crowd of people. Regardless of how you land, and you can maybe debate that with friends this afternoon, the meaning is still the same. It doesn't change our meaning this morning. In fact, we could subtitle this part of the message, A Place at the Table. Because here Jesus describes those who have a place in the kingdom and those who don't. Those who will be seated around the marriage supper of the Lamb and those who will not. And he begins with those who are seated around the table. He begins with these blesseds. Blessed is simply an example of those who are blessed. He's not saying that these people have an easy life, nor is he saying we are blessed if we pursue these things. Rather, he's saying these are the kinds of people who are blessed by God. These are the kinds of people who enjoy the favor of God. Although they may look, be looked down upon in this life, they are blessed with an inheritance from God that lasts into the next life. And he gives us four categories. First, those who are poor. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You can imagine as Jesus is looking out over the crowd, there are many there who are poor. If we used Corey's definition of poor earlier, I don't think anyone gathered around Jesus at this time came in a car or carried a cell phone. Right? Isn't that the definition he gave us? So all of them would be poor. We know that certainly they were rich at this time, but most of the crowd would have been in poverty. And Jesus is not saying that poverty itself is a blessing. 
There's no inherent virtue in poverty. But what Jesus is saying is that God chooses to bless in ways that are different from the world. That being poor does not disqualify you from the kingdom, from being blessed by God. In fact, there's a vulnerability in poverty that can make faith more tangible. So when we think poor, we need not just think those who lack financial means or material means. We need to think about those who are poor in spirit, as Matthew says. Those who recognize our own need, those who recognize our inadequacy to save ourselves, those who realize our poverty, realize that we have nothing to offer to merit the saving grace of God. You see, it's only those who are poor, those who realize that we have nothing to offer for our salvation, it's only the poor who receive the kingdom of God. It's the poor in spirit who realize that Jesus alone can save by grace alone. It's only the poor in spirit that have a place in God's eternal family. Blessed are the poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. You can't buy your way in. But it's only through the poverty of spirit. Jesus, save me. Do we receive the kingdom of God? The second kind of people who are blessed according to Jesus here are blessed are those who are hungry. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. So you can see a contrast there. Those who are hungry now versus those who will be satisfied. Matthew would add in his account, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So physical hunger, again, may be what's meant here, but I think it's more than that. At a minimum, Jesus is referring to those who hunger for the things of God. Those who hunger, according to the Lord's Prayer, for the realities of heaven to be a reality on earth as we pray, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those who hunger for God's glory to be seen. And what is Jesus' encouragement? His encouragement is that you will be satisfied. And isn't that what we want? As we look around, we read the headlines, we watch the news, we follow Twitter or social media, and we see brokenness, we see division, we see hurt, we see anger, we see political tension, racial tension, we see marriages fracturing. We see hunger, we hear about the statistics, as Corey shared with us earlier from Compassion International about hunger and needy children around the world. And doesn't, doesn't your heart long for justice? Doesn't your heart long for the realities of God's kingdom to be reflected here on earth? And I think we do. We sing it when we gather together. We sing, do you feel the world is broken We do. Do we feel the shadows of the sin and the sorrow and the hurt in which we live deepen? We do. 
Do we sense that all creation is groaning and that the new creation is coming? Don't we long for the glory of the Lord to be manifest among us and God, the, God to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to forever inaugurate His kingdom? We, we do. We long for that. And Jesus here is saying, blessed are you who are hungry now, who hunger and thirst for righteousness now because you will not be disappointed. In Jesus Christ, the day is coming when justice will be served. In Jesus Christ, the day is coming when God will put to rights everything that is broken and wrong. Blessed are you who hunger because one day you will be satisfied. The third kind of people who are blessed here are blessed are those who weep. Look at the second part of verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Again, there's a now and a yet to come. Blessed are those who weep now for you will one day Laugh. And again, Jesus is not commanding us to mourn. He's not commanding us to be gloomy or sad. But he's describing the kind of people for whom Jesus has come, the kind of people who have hope, the kind of people who have a seat at the table in the kingdom of God. And those who have a seat at the table are those who mourn. In other words, those who don't have it all together, those whose life is not easy and carefree, those who have experienced deep pain, and intense trials. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is not restricted to people with neat and tidy lives. It is for those with messy lives. It is for those who lament and mourn. Those whose life can be described as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Why? I mean, why would those who mourn be able to rejoice? Because again, there is a king who is coming. There is a marriage supper of the Lamb that will happen. And we know, according to Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 21, that Jesus Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We know according to Psalm chapter 126 that our sorrow and our weeping will be turned to laughter in that day. When we rejoice that our faith is now sight, that there is a reality to everything we have hoped for and it is made new. Fourth, here in this list of Beatitudes, these blessings, Jesus essentially kind of flips the script here and he says, blessed are we when we suffer on account of him. Look at verses 22 and 23 because it's a bit different than what we've seen already. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So this beatitude shifts. Instead of just describing those who have a seat at the table, now 
This beatitude focuses on the blessing that all believers have when we suffer on account of King Jesus. Again, Jesus' point is not that we are to seek out rejection so that we can be rewarded. Like, bring it on. Where can I go where I will face the most suffering and the most rejection? I'm there. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, Jesus is demonstrating the comfort that exists, that is experienced by those who are hated and excluded because of Jesus. And what is the comfort? Well, if we put Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and Luke's Sermon on the Plain together, we see that the comfort we have, even when we are excluded and marginalized and hated because of our faith, is knowing that Jesus experienced the same kinds of trials, the same kinds of suffering, the same kinds of exclusion, and God's faithful prophets, those who spoke the word of God with conviction and boldness, experienced the same suffering as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor during the the rise and the occupation of the Nazi regime who himself suffered, who himself would later be killed by the very Nazis that he sought to minister to, wrote this, suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. That is why Luther defined the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Isn't that interesting? Luther defined the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship, Bonhoeffer goes on to say, means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of God's grace. Blessed are you when people hate you because you're a Christian, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of Jesus Christ. Rejoice and be glad because we are in a long line of faithful men and women of God who have experienced the same. Again, it is not as though we go seeking this suffering. In fact, Something interesting happens in church history near the end of the first century and well in and through the second century. So we're talking the late, uh, like, 50, like about 75 to 80 A.D. on through the early 300s A.D. What you begin to see happening is more and more Christians are martyred, more and more Christians are killed for their faith. But in the midst of all of that, martyrs were held in such high esteem because they had actually died for their faith that church leaders, pastors in local churches began to encounter a different problem. And that problem was that people wanted to be martyred and so they would be needlessly inflammatory to the government. They would be needlessly aggressive towards the occupying powers so that they could hopefully be killed and then they could be a martyr. My guess is that you have never faced that sort of temptation, but it's likely you have experienced the subtle temptation to try to keep the peace or to avoid anything that might reveal your faith. 
And to this, Jesus actually tells us there is a blessing for those of us who are being hated and excluded for our faith. Which brings us to verse 24, where Jesus really turns and begins to make the same point, but from the opposite direction. These are the woes now. These are the the warnings. Woe is is literally, it's a warning. In fact, we see lots of woes in the Bible, specifically Isaiah chapter 65. God gives woe after woe after woe for those who abandon the Lord, and these are warnings of a different kind, verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So here Jesus gives four woes that seem to correspond to the four blessings that he has just given. And as with these four woes, it would be easy to kind of flatten them out and just say, okay, the point is it's bad to be rich, it's bad to be full, it's bad to be joyful, it's bad to be well thought of, but that's not at all the point Jesus is making. 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle wrote, we are not to suppose that the possession of riches and the rejoicing spirit and the good word of man are necessarily proofs that people are not Christ's disciples. Abraham and Job were rich. David and Paul had their seasons of rejoicing. Timothy was one who had a good report from outsiders. All these, we know, were true servants of God. All these were blessed in this life and shall receive the blessing of the Lord on the day of his appearing. Ryle continues, Who are the persons then to whom our Lord says, Woe unto you? They are those who refuse to seek treasure in heaven because they love the good things of this world better. They will not give up their money if need requires for the sake of the gospel. Second, they are those who prefer the joys and so-called happiness of this world to the joy and peace of believing. They will not risk losing joy and happiness in this life to gain joy and peace in the life to come. Third, they are those who love the praise of man more than the praise of God, and they will turn their backs on God to keep face with the world. These are the kind of men whom our Lord had in view when he pronounced these warnings. Woe unto you. Woe unto you who are rich, not because it is impossible to be rich and faithful. Because there come with riches the temptation to trust in things other than God. It's a temptation to rely on our own ability or our own income. I mean, haven't we seen that just in the last year with COVID? And how many of us would have expected that a global pandemic would sweep through the United States? This is something that happens in other undeveloped parts of the world. Right? Because we have medical technology. We have good hygiene. We have money. We can afford medicine. We can afford medical care. We have hospitals, tons of hospitals. We have medical professionals who are highly trained. And yet, 
what we experienced over the last 13 months is the frailty of life and how even all of those wonderful good gifts of God's common grace do not negate the fact that at the end of the day, our lives are in the hands of God and in His hands alone. Woe to you who are rich, because you have received your consolation. Whatever peace you have now in your riches, in your self-sufficiency, Jesus says, that's your prize, and that's all the prize you will get. Likewise, woe to you who are full now, who think you have everything you need, who don't see your need for a Savior, who don't hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. Bless, woe to you who laugh now, who are light and flippant about suffering and crisis and trials, who pretend that all of life is great, who make jokes about eternity and what happens in the life hereafter. Jesus says, go on and laugh, that's fine, but the warning is that you will one day mourn and weep when eternal reality is revealed. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. And you might think, wait a minute, isn't a qualification for an elder, according to Paul's letter to Timothy, that an elder needs to be thought well of by outsiders? And yet Jesus is saying, woe to you when people speak well of you. I think the significance here is why are we thought well of? And the word all, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Are you thought well of simply because you don't speak up about wrongs? Are you thought well of because you don't speak up about the gospel? Are you thought well of because you go along with the crowd? Are you thought well of because you flatter or because you tell people what they want to hear? This is what Jesus is referring to here because it's just like the false prophets. Brothers and sisters, we are not called to be divisive, but the gospel itself divides. We are not called to be quarrelsome. But according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, we as Christians will be a fragrance of life to people we meet, and we will be the stench of death to other people we meet. Which is why sometimes as Christians, we have experienced times when we're like, it's almost just like they don't like us simply because we're a Christian. The Bible says we should expect that. And so I think this teaching of Jesus, this sermon on the plain, should shock us a bit. It should remind us of the people for whom Christ died. It should remind us of the surprising abundance of God's grace. It should remind us that God does not evaluate as we sometimes are tempted to evaluate. And it should remind us of those who have a place at the table. One final connection to make here. I want you to just look back in your Bible to chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. You remember in this section, Jesus is at the home of Levi, or Matthew, the tax collector. He's gathered there with this notorious sinner, and around him are gathered a crowd of horrible sinners. 
And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and the scribes question Jesus and his disciples as to why in the world they would be gathering together with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Two categories, the sick and the well. The sick realize they need a physician. They realize they have no hope in and of themselves. And the well think that they can do it all on their own. The sinners who realize we have no right to stand before a holy God and those who think they are righteous and think they can get in on their own good works. And I think what we see here in these Beatitudes and these woes in chapter 6 is Jesus further explaining those who are sick, those who are sinners, and those who tragically will rest in their own illusions of wellness, in their own illusion of self-righteousness and see no need for a physician. So I would just ask as we close, which category do you find yourself in this morning? And if you find yourself in the category of woe, the good news of the gospel is that it is not too late to cry out to Jesus for forgiveness, to turn and trust in Jesus by faith, who came and lived and died on the cross for our sin, was raised for our justification that we might be made right with the Creator God, that we might have a seat at the table. Would you stand with me?